Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is your Sunday Morning Shift. a number of college admission scandals in recent months. We've heard about parents surrendering guardianship of their teen to help them gain access to need-based financial aid. The Varsity Blues scandal, where wealthy parents bribed college administrators and test proctors to get their kids into so-called elite university. There's also growing concern about the cost of college, which leaves many students saddled with debt. But for many, the belief that college is the key to improving socioeconomic mobility remains strong. Paul Tuff is a journalist and author, and his new book is The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us. It examines the barriers faced by minority, low-income, and first-generation college students as they pursue that college career. Paul Tuff joins us now. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Great to be here. So this is your fourth book, um, and when we've spoken before, we've talked a lot about the earlier years, early childhood education. Why did you turn your eye to college? I think it was just what I was seeing in in the data and in the news that those years after high school, there's more and more evidence that those are the years where decisions that young people make and decisions that are made for them have such a great impact on the trajectory the rest of their lives are going to take. And I wanted to understand both why that was true, how that worked, uh, and why there is such a growing divergence between the outcomes for people from different backgrounds. Well, you cover a lot of ground in the book, and we won't get to it all, but I do want you to explain the link between economic mobility and higher education. Well, in the past, the link between those two forces was really clear in this country, that higher education was the great engine of social mobility. It was the thing that that most reliably would help young people move from poverty to the middle class, from the middle class to affluence. And now, in lots of ways, that engine has broken down. And when you talk to young people, especially young people from modest backgrounds, they say that more often higher education feels like the obstacle to their social mobility, the thing that is holding them back. Talk about that a little bit more, the obstacle. Yeah, so So, I mean, for individual young people from whatever background, it's still clear that a college education can be a great force for social mobility. I followed a lot of young people as they were making their way into and through university, and it really still does have this amazingly transformative effect. But higher education is very unequally distributed in the country right now, uh, both in terms of who goes and also where they go. The most selective, most well-funded Institutions of higher education are almost entirely dominated by young people from affluent backgrounds, which means for everyone else, there are fewer and fewer opportunities to really get ahead through college. And that's one of the things you explore early in the book, um, how young people decide where to attend college and this link between income and the decision about where where you go and, and just explain a little more about what you found there. One of the things that makes higher education so complicated is that two things are happening at once, right? Young people are deciding whether and where to go, and then institutions are deciding uh, for them whether they'll admit them. But I think for a lot of young people, especially from uh, rural communities and from communities where there aren't a lot of people who've gone to college before, the whole process can just seem really daunting, and especially when it means going to an institution that is such a sort of concentrated uh, example of wealth and affluence. It can feel culturally, socially really jarring. Uh, when students get there, they often find at the beginning that that it can be a really jarring experience. Usually after a semester or two, um, that culture shock goes away, but at first it can be really uh, startling. Is there something else happening um, around the expectations we set for students? Because you talked to students who were high achievers academically, who came from more modest means, and sometimes they had this drive to go to 
what we call elite universities, but there also seems to be a question about whether or not they felt they had a place there. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's not so much about the expectations that we put on the students. I, th- I feel like when they when they get there, they are uh, enthusiastic, they're committed, they're working hard. I feel like it's the institutions that, for the most part, and there are some some uh, exceptions, for the most part, are not doing enough to make those students feel welcome. And especially given the stratification in terms of who goes where, when you're a low income student at a highly selective institution, there is a lot that the institution should do. I think to make you feel welcome, it's like welcoming anyone into into a home into a community, there are certain common sense steps you can take to make people feel more welcome. And beyond even feeling welcome, what did you learn about the way universities are recruiting students? They're using lots of different methods that tend toward bringing in more affluent students. Um, so I spent some time embedded in an admissions office at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and watching while they were making their decisions about who uh, whom to admit. And the process, I, I thought before I got there that it was the admissions people who held all the power, who were the ones who really were in control. But being in admissions these days, you feel under enormous pressure and enormous strain, mostly because a big part of your job is bringing in tuition dollars. And so the sort of public rhetoric is that we're looking for diversity, we're looking for merit. Um, the private pressures that those admissions people feel is we need to find as many uh, students who can pay our often quite high tuitions, and we need to get as many of them to choose us as possible. I want to get to financial aid in a moment, but before that, I want to look at another key part of the admissions process, and, and that's SAT and ACT scores. Uh, reading that part of the book brought back some not-so-fond memories <laughs> for me from long ago. Yeah. But what did you learn about the way these tests impact admissions? Well, they're really central. I mean, they still are a huge criterion for many institutions. They're such an easy sort of number uh, for admissions people to hang on to. And so I think some of them put way too much weight on these tests. And what is true now has always been true with the SAT and the ACT, that that scores on these tests correlate really highly with family income. So uh, the more money your family has, the more likely you are to score highly on these tests. And during the years that I was reporting this book, the college board was trying to uh, either change that fact or change the public perception of that fact. And the college on... board oversees these tests. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Sorry, the college board that oversees the SAT. And I feel like they're under pressure because of this very basic fact that using SAT and ACT scores in admissions makes it easier for institutions to admit more rich kids and makes it harder for them to admit more low-income students. And this is a, a place where access comes into question again. Um, you spent some time with a man named Ned Johnson and his clients, and he works um, with students, mostly wealthy students, on test prep. Um, and it, what's striking is, is that he's able to help these people, uh, these uh, students improve their scores significantly, not by focusing so much on academics, but by focusing more on their psychological state. Tell us more about what he's doing. Yes. Ned, Ned's this tutor in Washington, D.C. Uh, he charges $400 an hour, and he bills more hours than anyone else at his company. He's a great tutor, but when I would go and watch him work, I was really struck by the fact I expected him to be talking about you know algebra and polynomials and reading comprehension strategies. And instead, he was mostly talking about life and about stress and about what it's like to be uh, 
um, uh, an affluent, ambitious kid in a high-pressure family. And his theory is that most of the students who would show up at his door already have a pretty solid grounding in English and math, and that what is keeping them from the highest scores is anxiety uh, and pressure. And, and sort of paradoxically, the more pressure that you put on these tests, the more seriously you take them, often the, the lower your score is because you freak out when you're in the, in the testing room. So he's trying to calm them down. He talks about sleep. He talks about exercise. He talks about balance. And he also teaches them little tricks to gain points on the SAT and the ACT, totally legal tricks, mm-hmm. that both help in terms of improving their scores but also have this psychological effect by convincing them that the test is just a game. It's not actually some measure of their value as a, as a person. And once they're able to let go of that very fre- uh, threatening idea, uh, they actually do better. They calm down. They're able to focus. They do better. So treating it as a game, and I think that part of the book really stuck stuck out for me because the students he's working with, um, they're able to take the test multiple times. You know, there's a part in the book where he's working with a student who really feels like she needs to do soul cycle before she goes into the test. Um, and they they go through a lot of different ways to get her access to soul cycle so that she can improve. And her, her test scores improve significantly. But for a lower income student, this test, you may have one shot at it. And it's not it's not a game. And I came away with this feeling like, OK, so how do we fundamentally shift the way something like the ACT and and SAT are treated in college admissions when it's become such a significant part of that process? Well, one way that some institutions uh, answer that question is by going what's called test optional, by deciding that they're not going to require students to submit scores. I wrote about DePaul University here in Chicago that went test optional, I think, close to a decade ago. And what they find is that there's no question that, that using SAT scores does give admissions officers a small amount more information, uh, but it also pushes them towards more inequitable uh, decisions. They're, they're more likely to choose well-off kids than low-income students. And so when you allow students to not submit their test scores, what DePaul found is it makes it easier for them to admit uh, the kind of high achieving in terms of their high school grades, high achieving, low income, first generation students of color in Chicago who they really wanted to be admitting. And what DePaul found when they looked at the uh, results a few years down the road, the students who they did admit through test optional admissions uh, did have lower test scores. They asked them for their scores after they got in for research purposes. But in fact, despite those low scores, they did every bit as well as the students with much higher test scores who had submitted their scores. And so for DePaul, those test scores, those lower test scores for these students were, were sort of a false signal. They were uh, an alarm bell saying this student won't won't thrive at DePaul when, in fact, uh, they did. But it feels like test optional admissions is still fairly rare. Do you see anything in the system right now that says this may be a direction we're moving in? Well, I mean, one of the big breakthroughs in the test optional movement was uh, when the University of Chicago decided to go test optional, I believe, in 2018. Um, And the University of Chicago is the most selective institution in the country today that uses test optional admissions. Uh, Mostly the schools that do it are are sort of small liberal arts colleges, about half of the 100 top-ranked 
uh, liberal arts colleges use test-optional admissions. But University of Chicago is on a different level. It's a very right-brained, number-focused institution. And the fact that they felt that they could continue to admit academically excellent classes year after year without looking at, at students' test scores, I think, was a sign that things might be shifting. We can't talk about higher education without talking about the cost. Um, recently, right here in Illinois, we learned about families who were surrendering guardianship of their teens um, to help them get access to need-based financial aid. When you looked at how the system as a whole was working, how does that financial aid piece fit into this larger picture? It's big. It's central. But it's complicated. So, I mean, I feel like one of the big forces that has been happening, especially in the past couple of decades in higher education, is that we, the public, have stopped funding higher education the way that we used to, which has uh, affected the public higher education system. And most College students go to public institutions, especially uh, low-income college students. And just since 2001, we as a nation have cut our per-student public funding of of public higher education by 16 percent, which is a really big cut at a moment when uh, all the signs from the economy is that we need more higher education rather than less. And so what that has done is transferred the risk and the cost from the public onto individuals, which has been a big part of why those numbers have gone up. Private institutions have followed. Uh, public institutions in many ways. But the thing that I found out about financial aid is that we think of it still as this response to need, right? If you need money, colleges will give it to you. But in fact, because of the complicated pressures that exist on admissions offices, they now use financial aid through this crazy process called financial aid optimization consultants as a lure, as a way to pull in students and persuade them to show up. And so There is a list price tuition. The actual average tuition people are paying at private institutions is about half of that. But it's not like everyone's paying half. Some are paying more. Some are paying less, depending on this complicated calculation of what the college is worth to the uh, student and what the student is worth to the college. So it does have the effect overall of raising uh, raising prices, raising uh, the, the debt that students pay. But it is... Uh, sort of intertwined and intermingled with these larger issues of equity and access. I came away from this book wondering if there is a broader philosophical discussion we need to have about higher education, who we think it's for, um, its role in economic mobility, um, what we think that role is and the role it's actually playing. Uh, Give me your thoughts on that. I mean, I I looked back at other eras in American history where we were getting the same sort of signals that we needed more education for our young people. And at other times in history, so I wrote about the GI Bill. I also wrote about this era 100 years ago called the high school movement when so many American communities started for the first time building their public high schools. In the past, we were able to just respond to these cues, you know, new technologies, new skills needed in the workplace. So let's educate our kids to a higher level. Now we have this idea that high school is just that that's what the public should pay for. That's what we should invest in. And then everything else above that is a luxury that you know young people have to pay for and figure out themselves. And that's clearly crazy because it is no longer possible for almost everyone to have a, a sort of decent middle class career with nothing but a high school education. And yet we as a, as a nation haven't responded to that fact by saying, OK, let's pull together and create a system where higher education, at least for the first couple of years after high school, is something that everyone can do and that is supported by the government. And instead, we have this really patchwork system, this very exclusionary system, often very expensive system um, that for so many young people isn't working. But that basic American idea that 
uh, our collective public education benefits us all, if we can remember that and apply it to the current situation of higher education, I think this problem is not so difficult to solve. As institutions are grappling with how to make higher education equitable and accessible, what are the questions you hope they're asking themselves that maybe they're not yet? One of the things that I'm hoping that institutions will ask is just how we can create incoming classes that are more balanced, that look more like America, that include um, the kind of students who can succeed on our campus, even if all of the immediate indicators aren't there, that they're like the students who have been here before. And then I hope that they take another step and say, what is our responsibility to these students once we admit them? I feel like a lot of institutions until recently have looked at at, at their relationship to their students in a sort of sink or swim mentality, right? That in high school, yes, you help people finish. In college, you just let them in, you give them the classes. If they figure it out, great. If not, they weren't meant to be here. And I think many colleges are realizing that is not the right strategy, um, and they are changing their approach to be more connected to their students, more helpful to their students. Um, And when you do that, it works, and these students are much more likely to succeed. Paul Tuff's new book is The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us. Paul, it's always great to talk to you. Thanks very much, you too. And that's your Sunday morning shift. We come to you six days a week with news and interviews that focus on your city, your neighborhood, and the things that matter most to you. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Let's talk again soon.